Welcome to Spoilers Intended, a podcast about series, novels, and films. For this episode, the spice must flow, eyes will glow, and part two is already a go. That's right, we're talking Dune. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Ford, joined as always by Andrew Knuckles. Hey, how's it going? And Joel Killingsworth. Hello. I, I can't remember what you did last time, so I was going to ping you for whether or not it was changed, but it doesn't matter. No, you did it is thing. the exact same thing. It was, it's the same thing every time. If you it, listen to the No Way Home, Spider-Man No Way Home episode, then I, you know that I have asserted that it's the same every time. And at some point, there will be a supercut of every single Joel. <laughs> and it, and hello. It's, hello. And it's actually hello. just one cut from one episode repeated 20 times, <laughs> so you can feel like you were there. That's the, that's the magic of editing. He doesn't actually say anything. Andrew just puts it in there after the fact. It's just so I am, much work. I, I don't actually exist. He did it. No, no, no. He did it once. You did it once. So it's just like being the original voice actor for the Roadrunner. They only paid her for <laughs> meep, one meep. meep and they played it twice. <laughs> Anyways, moving forward. So we're talking about Dune today. Before we jump in there, because Dune is kind of a formative and a foundational work for a lot of media we see today. Yeah. Uh, so media, sci-fi, mostly fantasy, sci-fi, but yeah stuff all all sorts of stuff so i thought it would be interesting for us to talk a little bit about what media was formative for us so this is something that you read or watched in your quote-unquote formative years so so we're talking Uh, early teens all the way up into the the mid-20s so while you were still kind of learning before you would classify yourself truly as an adult yeah uh and how does that affect maybe your view on other media, your views on life, expectations, all these kinds of things? So just something that really define, defined you as a person or also defined you as how you would criticize something mm-hmm. or how you would consume other media mm-hmm. at this point yeah, in your mm-hmm. life. So I think I'm just going to go first. Yeah, Ooh, yeah go Y'all ahead. listen to me. Take it. <laughs> so for me, I picked the Master and Commander series by Patrick O'Brien. Mm-hmm. So this is a set of 20 books. That's a, that's a lot of books. It is a lot of books. And it is historical fiction. So it is all based around the period of the Napoleonic Wars. So it follows a British Navy captain mm-hmm. and one of his really trusted friends who is also his uh, surgeon mm-hmm. on all the ships that he has captained, et cetera, and follows him around throughout a lot of events that happened in the Napoleonic Wars. So it's really amazing because the the author does did all of this research for these books. So he had to go and look up where ships were, what campaigns were happening, where, and then he placed his characters in actual historical events. Yeah, historical yeah. fiction like that, where so much research is involved, is really fascinating. Right. So there there are a lot of small individual actions that he kind of fudged or does whatever, but when they are part of a large, big action that. It actually happened. And there are there is a whole book that is dedicated just to the charts and the layouts of the fights and where they were and where they went and how long it would take. And it's it is almost a little bit too exacting in detail in that borderline after reading through a few of these books, you could kind of feel like, yeah, I could probably sail ship off of this. <laughs> because he he knows where every rope is, every thing that a sailor would actually have to do in that time period, every part of their life, what their meals were like, how this worked. And it builds up this incredible, obviously over a long period of time, but this incredible feel of the realism realism of it 
And it gives him this great space because he doesn't really have to necessarily – I don't want to say write a plot, but the plot is all the character interactions between themselves yeah. and what they have. So he can really, really drill down on that because how the boat works, he doesn't have – it's it's not the expanse where you have to invent how a ship flies through space. Right. It's established. This is how the boat works. So he doesn't have to worry about any of that. So it's all extremely character-driven. And it gets into some really, really cool stuff that ultimately for me – one, the, the interaction and how the characters treat each other was really amazing. The way they, they approach and how realistic their friendship was mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, they have disagreements, they have fights, they work through issues, all these things. But the, I don't want to say reverence, but the understanding of history for me was really great because it was a big one. I got, I got the first one of these books it was a birthday, either a birthday or a Christmas gift when I was 10 or 11. And it was this huge window into a part history that I didn't necessarily know that well. Mm-hmm. And also just an, a real appreciation for things that have happened. And, well, well, if this happened, and I really appreciate this, what else happened? So it kind of kicked me into the whole, well, I want to learn more about history on my own. Mm-hmm. Because, I, you know, American education is kind of hit or miss. And I didn't necessarily have the greatest history teachers. But most of it could be found on my own somehow. So mm-hmm. I did. Uh, so I think that really stuck with me. And overall, I mean, it's just, it's an incredible series. Sadly, he he passed away, oh, almost a decade, more than a decade ago at this point. Uh, and my mom, my mom always kind of says it was the saddest she's ever seen my dad and I uh, over someone that we've never met. Right. <laughs> and so I guess that's part of it too, is it was kind of a bonding thing with my dad and I, because we yeah. both read through it at different times and we'll talk about it. And it it's just, uh, it's so good. I, I really, if anyone has time to commit to 20 books, you don't have to commit to 20 books, but at least a couple of the books, it's, it's really worth a read for a really fantastic example of what historical fiction can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So on that note, I'm going to punt it over to Andrew. Okay. So initially, whenever we were kind of talking about this concept, you know, because we, pre-show, we always kind of like toss around ideas of what a good, um, you know, conversation would be to before we really talk about the movie that we're talking about. We, yeah. we want to have some idea of what yeah. we're doing. And I initially had Rendezvous with Rama, which is my favorite oh, Arthur C. Clarke. I am changing it up. Um, my favorite Arthur C. Clarke book. Um, however, and it I, was it tied in too because oh, we it, have the same director was just he's just announced that he's y- doing it. Yeah, well, he he announced basically they announced that he is going to eventually direct it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is not that it is under production. Or anything like that, but he has the green Spe- light. Speak, speaking of, of Villeneuve, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he has the green light to go ahead and direct it whenever he wants. But obviously, Dune Two has to come before that. But um, I actually have a more formative, okay, piece of media. Were you which were is, you listening to me and then you were like, oh, I have no. Uh, it was whenever you said, um, kind of like how you view life. Okay. Fine, um, yeah. and I actually, um, my my piece is a movie. Based on a book. Oh, okay. Spicy. Um, uh, Contact from 1997. Oh, okay. Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster, yeah. yep. Um, so my, whenever it came out, we went and actually saw it in theaters. I was mm-hmm. 11 at the time. And there was something about the film, just the core concept of the film of, you know, if we're the only ones here, then it's an awful waste of space. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> <laughs> okay, I I love that phrase. Well, if we're the only ones here, what a waste of space. Yeah, <laughs> and and there's there's something about just the whole concept of the film, and it's written by Carl Sagan, mm-hmm. and just like Jodie Foster does a fantastic performance of oh, she's being great. 
um, uh, Dr. Haraway and or Haraway, excuse me. And just, like there's the whole film is just so interesting from the perspective of it's not what you would think like first contact would be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because you have like Close Encounters of the Third Kind and all these other alien films from the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. and and even the 90s and that kind of stuff, like in Independence Day and that kind of stuff where they have malicious intent or they, you know, like they're trying to invade us. Mm-hmm. And this was contact of what more than likely what it would actually be like to where we receive some kind of message through via radio waves because that's pretty much the only only real way that we would actually receive information mm-hmm. just because the the law of physics of of light travel and all that kind of stuff just dictates how that would be the distances are just so incredibly just, yeah vast. It's, mm-hmm. like it is space like a lot of people don't really understand how big space is. It's, it's such an unfathomable number of, of nothingness mm-hmm. that just exists outside of our atmosphere that it, it's, it's such a hard concept to grasp. And I feel that contact kind of like set that in pretty early for me mm-hmm. in the sense of whenever I like, you know, pretty much since then I've, I've just been all about space. I've always, I've always, mm-hmm. um, I love going um, star photography, you know, stargazing, trying to do meteor showers. When I y'all went out, I even saw the the large array out yeah. in uh, New Mexico. Yeah, New Mexico. So, which is where um, the most iconic scene of the film is right. is is filmed. Yeah, and uh, it was just fantastic, just kind of going out there because, like, you're you're driving through New Mexico, and there's just this twelve mile just basin where you can see the other side of it. And then you just see all these like, you know, satellite dishes mm-hmm. just kind of, you know, just laid out there. And then the uh, the actual facility is really cool because you can go tour kind of around the area and they, they all move them via uh, basically these railroad tracks up to um, condensed down to three miles all the way up to like 13 miles in every direction. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's at the time, I, I'm still not entirely sure, but it, it may be the largest um, radio telescope in the world still, mm-hmm. but I, I may be wrong. There may be one down in Chile that is larger now, um, just just since then. But either way, it's a huge yeah. man-made object. Yeah, or objects, in uh, the and you can you can actually see it from space, which is really cool yeah. too. And the the th- there's something about the film that whenever I watched it, you know, it, it kind of set in the idea of a very realistic sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Of, of that's kind of what I try and. Uh, try and seek out whenever I'm I'm looking at like new shows mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So like Rendezvous with Rama or Arthur C. Clarke is pretty much like right up that alley. Two thousand one Space Odyssey. I loved um, just kind of the the general interaction of how an astronomer would just look at you know contact in a very scientific way mm-hmm. instead of these bombastic characters that are you know like in Independence Day where you know people are. These aliens are trying to come. Welcome to Earth. Yeah, Yeah. that kind of stuff. And it's like that's that's not really how you would accept that. Yeah, like it's it's very it's it's so much more of a like I just I just couldn't see that being a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's just something about that movie. And you know, unfortunately, a lot of people at the time did not really think it it adapted Carl Sagan's book very well. Um, which is classic Hollywood. That's just how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, but every, I mean, I'll probably rewatch that maybe, maybe two times, two or three times a year. Mm-hmm. Just cause, you know, you get in the, you get in the itch and you're like, oh man, I just gotta, I gotta try it. 
watch it again and then you know and i i know every single beat of that film um and it's just great mm-hmm. so yeah joel well for me it has to be uh the wheel of time by robert jordan mm-hmm. the anime the amazon series the <laughs> book series <laughs> i have to get that in there uh which including the the prequel mm-hmm. that was written kind of in in the middle there and uh after robert jordan passed away the, the three final books of the series that were written by Brandon Sanderson. Uh, the whole series is uh, 15 books long. So uh, similar to Master and Commander, if you want to get into this, it's uh, got to commit. And I, and I will tell you, <laughs> the Wheel of Time books are a lot. Master and Commander books top out in the three and 400 pages. That is not where Wheel of Time tops out. Yeah. And, and for me, like you, you talked about, uh, this kind of being a a bonding medium with you and your dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it was it was me and my older brother who who was uh, reading through these and, and gave them to me and said you'd really like these. Uh, it was it was a really fantastic stepping stone in my my journey of coming to love literature and because uh, you know growing up as a kid read all of the 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 classic little children's fairy tale stuff stopped off at Chronicles of Narnia and you know all all of that kind of thing and this was really the first adult grand fantasy series that I had read and had you had you, had you hit Tolkien yet at that point I had I had hit Tolkien okay. um but but Tolkien was uh al- already already antiquated in style linguist. he's a linguist well linguist but yeah, right. Like, like so. So Tolkien is antiquated in style, and mm-hmm. while he's unrivaled to this day as a world builder, uh, his his method of writing is is more like he's writing a history than than writing a novel. Right. And the the that's how I meant historian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the the depth of description and um. Uh, and the way that Jordan used uh, different characters' points of view to give you as the reader the whole picture while very clearly leaving different characters in the dark about different aspects mm-hmm. of the story um, was really uh, instructive to me in understanding how stories are put together. And um, it's, I started it in early in high school and finished it when when uh, Brandon Sanderson released the final book um, after I had finished college, and uh, so that was a very consistent journey through through really my entire formative period. Yeah, I can I can support all that as a longtime reader and rereader of Wheel of Time. I'm 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 kind I'm going through the the motions of reading it. I've read the first book. (laughs) I've read read the first book. I'm halfway through the second. Um, I had to basically take a break so I could read the entire final expanse book Mm -hmm. um, over the past couple weeks. And uh, so you know now I'm I'm in the the lull of after finishing a book. I'm giving myself a little bit of buffer time so I don't like overlap the two tonal differences essentially. Yeah. Um. I I haven't. I haven't hated what I've listened to so far, um, but I, I definitely can say that I have not fallen in love with any of the characters. Yeah. So, you know, but I, I do plan on reading the whole series at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you know, we're not, we're not dinging you for not. No, I, I know. Just, just I, I'm, I'm late to the party. I understand. 
It's just there. There's so many conversations that have taken place between Joel and I. Where it's like, Andrew, you don't, you don't mind. You don't, <laughs> ignore this. Earmuffs. Earmuffs. <laughs> All right. Well, moving on. Now that we've talked a little bit about you know the media that has formed us, time to talk about some media that has formed and informed a whole heck of a lot of stuff that mm-hmm. has come after it. Yeah. And we are not talking about Sting and a metal speedo. <laughs> well, we may talk 80s. a little bit I about it. We'll talk about it a little bit. But what we are talking about is the new installment of Dune, part one, uh, by Denis Villeneuve. Yep. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I think it's time to kick it over to Joel. And what's our score? What's our, what's our well, no synopsis first, and I then we did score. score. First no, we, oh, okay, fine. Synopsis we'll, first. Well, synopsis. Synopsis first. first. Yeah, because I've got a, I've got a. He's got to get in the I've right got, headspace. I've got to scrunch my forehead with my fingers and rub them everywhere and just be like, I don't know what I'm about to Joel, say. This but is a visual medium. That's why. That's why I'm describing it with words. Oh, okay. <laughs> but you learned that from Jordan. We have the what describing things with words. <laughs> yeah. I, never before had I seen someone describe things with words. It was very formative. But I, <laughs> <laughs> so in in Dune Part One, we have a a grand space opera where multiple houses are vying for power in a galactic uh, empire, and um, there's this one particular planet where a a vital resource. Uh, comes from and it can be only found on this one planet arrakis also known as dune that's the name of the movie Ooh, <laughs> i wonder if that's where it takes place <laughs> uh and um the emperor has decreed that the house that previously ran this planet is out and the house of our heroes house atreides is in and so they're stepping up and they're going to run this planet for the emperor and they're they stand to benefit a lot because it's a very profitable enterprise mm-hmm. But they also stand to lose a lot because they know that they are they are bitter enemies with the house that previously controlled this planet, and they know that they will have left traps. And so it's the story about um, galactic politics being played out, uh, uh, kind of by proxy in in a lot of situations, on this this one desert planet with a hefty spoonful of um, uh, messianic prophecy thrown in around our our uh, main, main character. character who's the the son and heir to the duke of house atreides yes yep all right so now that we've had our synopsis what did we score dune we scored dune at an 8.9 out of 10 that is a pretty solid score very high yep and we will uh further down we'll get into the score breakdown uh, and and how we arrived at this number and our opinions on it, but we are still in a spoiler-free zone. So let's throw out maybe some spoiler-free impressions yep. of the movie overall, and I'm going to toss this over to Andrew first. Uh, okay, so I'm, I'm a, I've read the Dune novel three times now, and I've, I've seen the, the 1984 David Lynch film uh, twice, and, uh, you know, I'm... I, I would say that I am a, a, a well-versed fan of the, the franchise mm-hmm. um, or the, the novel or source material. And going into this film, I, there's, there's so many expectations going into these, this kind of adaptation because it, it has always been known as an, an unadaptable source mm-hmm. just right. because yeah. the, the, the other 
1984 David Lynch film just didn't didn't do well just because he tried to slam so much stuff into well, the... And, and there was even an attempt at an adaptation before that in the and 70s... It just, it just couldn't do it. That ...where the budget just went massively over, and they just they cut, took the losses and ran yeah. kind of thing. And so, you know, going into this, you're, you know, you've seen all the trailers, and you're like, oh, that looks pretty good. It looks like you did a really good job. Now, uh, Denis has done... Arrival and uh, Blade Runner 2049, mm-hmm. which I, both I absolutely love. They're great sci-fi films. And going into this, you know, I have a decent expectation of kind of what I was what is what I was in for. Mm-hmm. And I was blown away by how fantastic this film was in feel, in in plot, in acting, in music, like just everything. It was just like ju- it just like washed over me like a tidal wave mm-hmm. watching this film because we watched it on IMAX, and it was just fantastic. Uh, the just the the score by Hans Zimmer was like almost perfect. Yeah. Uh, the the cinematography by by Denis was just like there are just some key scenes which we'll get into a little bit later we'll, once we through. once we pass the 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 spoiler wall that just I mean just like blow you away just with his use of lighting and composition and all this other kind of stuff. I mean it's just like as close to like a, a sci-fi masterpiece that we could imagine. Mm-hmm. I mean we, we put it at an eight point nine. Yep. Right. And that, the, that the is the second highest that we've had that is Spider-Verse. Well second highest so far. Second highest so far, yeah. Spider-Verse was uh was the other one. But that is that is some really high marks mm-hmm. coming from us. Honestly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Steven? Oh you're gonna throw it back to me. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say, you know, what, what's not to love, right? It's almost hard to fill that in a little bit. And, you know, again, as you kind of touched on, it was the, the unadaptable book. Yeah. And in this case, they were right because this is part one of the book. They, he cut it in half. Yep. So he didn't technically adapt the whole book. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. He, he's only, <laughs> he only did basically two thirds. And I, and I think that that was an intelligent call mm-hmm. because at some point you have to build the world. You have to tell the story. You have to introduce the character. It, it, he just recognized there's too much happening here and you can't cram all of this into two well, hours. And his, mm-hmm. his style is very slow and deliberate. Mm-hmm. It, his, mm-hmm. he, he, he paces his, yeah, thoughtful is a good, good example. He paces his films very deliberately in the sense of it is not like a, I'll say a Marvel film yeah. where it's like boom, 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 scene, 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 scene. It is, you get one scene, you get one shot, slow pan, two minutes. And it, <laughs> and it stretches, and maybe yeah. there's a little bit of dialogue. Maybe there's no dialogue at all. Yeah. You know, it, just, it just goes. But yeah, I, this is the kind of film and the kind of material that I think he really excels at. Absolutely. And I, and I think that he really appreciates and, and loves. Mm-hmm. And also uh, Zimmer as well. Zimmer in an interview has said that he was a really big fan of the series growing up. Yep. You know, read it when he was like 17. And I think we, you really see that love poured into it and the appreciation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and, I, and I'm pretty sure that he, that Hans Zimmer and, and Denis, whenever they were offered, you know, basically like to take Dune on, they were like, it, I mean, like that was kind of like their, their white whale of the, of like films and ad- adaptations that they have always wanted to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, when uh, Denis had the opportunity, he was doing 2049. And then this opportunity came up, and he was, well, I'm going to take it, but I want I want Zimmer. Yep. So before it was even really said, I was like, well, this is who I'm getting. Yep. So I mean, Zimmer just does fantastic with atmospheric yeah. gores. Yeah, oh, yeah. Joel? So for me, the best part about the film was the the way that the pacing allowed you to be pulled into each and every scene. 
completely. You know, you you talked about the the pacing being deliberate, being mm-hmm. thoughtful. This is something like I I absolutely loved Blade Runner twenty forty nine for exactly the same mm-hmm. reason. It gives you this experience of of being able to fully emotionally connect with everything that's happening. Yeah. There's no there's no desensitization from being hit by going from excitement to excitement to excitement. Well, where it's not like cut, 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 right. jump, jump, jump. But at the same time, it's balanced by there's a there's an underlying tension mm-hmm. to the film that you're never allowed to completely let go of. And it just pulls you forward through the entire piece. It was just by the, when the when, you know, the end credits come on. You just, you take a breath yeah, <laughs> because you haven't really been able to take a breath yet. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, oh, it's so good. You've been holding your breath for basically two and a half hours. Yeah. You're just blue in the face and you're just like, oh, wow. Yeah. That was an experience. Yeah. While, while Zimmer is just bearing down on you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> push that tension through in music. Yeah. So the shields are about to go down. The spoilers will flow. And patreon.com slash spoilers intended podcast is vital for spice travel. Welcome to the intermission. back we are past the spoiler wall as andrew said the shields are down and it is time to get into the nitty-gritty we scored this an 8.9 yep the spice must flow and how are we going to break that down so for our scoring metric our rubric we have four categories that we are concerned with so that is spectacle performance score and plot and we'll, Mm -hmm. we'll give a little bit of blurb for each of those as we hit them but to start it off, I'm going to throw this over to Joel to kick off Spectacle. All right. So we're talking about Spectacle. This is the presentation of the film, the cinematography, the the effect that it has on the viewer, the ride. Yeah, the, the emotional, the emotional yeah. oomph. Yep. And I gave this a perfect 10. <laughs> you have I, no self-control. I just can't There's going to be a lot of lack <laughs> it of self-control. Was, it was absolutely amazing. I mean... I meant what I said before the spoiler wall. I said what I meant. The, <laughs> the the credits hit and you take a breath for the first time in two and a half hours. Yeah. It was that amazing of a ride. So uh, since uh, since the movie came out back in October, I've um, I think after we went and saw the movie in IMAX, we then watched it at home on HBO probably two more times. Mm-hmm. And nice. uh, yeah, we have a pretty nice sound system here and everything like that. And obviously you're not going to get the IMAX experience by, you know, by watching it at home, mm-hmm. but um, it, it didn't matter. Yeah. Like just every, like w- every single scene is just so masterfully created mm-hmm. that it's just like, it's just his composition skills are just fantastic. And I, I you can definitely tell that he built a lot of, um, he built from his experience doing Arrival, which is a relatively slow sci-fi film, really slow burn. Mm-hmm. And then he he also learned from the, the atmospheric kind of um, cinematography style of 
Blade Runner 2049. Mm -hmm. And then he just kind of merged the best of both worlds and kind of put it into this film. So, Joel, you gave it a 10. Yeah. So what? what give me a big factor in that 10. A big fa- ornithopters. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so like these dragonfly-based helicopters, essentially, yeah. Yeah. that they use for, for air... Uh, transportation. transportation on Arrakis are just incredible. The CG that they used on these, I don't, I don't know whether they use practical models at right, any some, point. Like some blending yeah, of the two or something. But they, they feel real. There is, even though they're using, you know, these, the four wings on each side kind of, mm-hmm. kind of uh, structure, it just, it looks so plausible and also so, so cool. <laughs> well, also very alien. Yeah. It's it's it, it kind of looks like an attack helicopter in general shape, mm-hmm. but it functions completely differently. And it it has this this element of being jet propelled, but also having it, it's it's like familiar but alien, right? Right. And so I know these things don't exist, but it is still now on my bucket list to fly in <laughs> one anyway. So you need Disney to get the rights to make like a a ride. Yeah, they're like the Millennium Falcon. I mean, you never know. You may uh, you may have some random billionaire that's like, I want to make one of those. Elon Musk, you hear? Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say Elon (laughs) Musk. I mean, come on, man. Where 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 the ornithopters at? And any, any anything else? else? Or or you don't want to take everything? You want you want to leave us some scraps? Well, I mean, so there there wasn't really a point where the CGI ever disappointed, right? Like there there Mm -hmm. there was not seems to be picked apart yeah um the uh the depiction of laser weaponry the last oh, the guns, last guns? Wow. Were, they were horrifying because it's just this one thin line of bright blue light that <laughs> is completely unstoppable and cuts everything in half well, that it passes through and right? i think it's also worth pointing out too it's not just it's not a pure straight line I mean, it is a straight line, but it's not just a pure. You know, in a lot of in a lot right, of like sci-fi, it has it has the it has the the air flowing the, through the, the it is illuminating it, yeah, or or it's, or it's like it's picking up particles as it goes. Mm-hmm. So you technically you wouldn't see it except that it's vaporizing these particles because yeah. it's a desert world. There's particles everywhere as it goes through. So it's not a perfect line. It has that little bit of dispersion mixed in. That's just oh, it looks so real and something that just doesn't actually exist. Yeah, well, and that's one of the probably the better examples of a laser-based weapon mm-hmm. in any kind of sci-fi, like that, like the in media that we've seen, where like, like if you go back to Star Wars, like those aren't actually lasers; those are gas guns, right? Um, yep. because like, like if you watch well, the Mythbusters episode, they actually move slower than a bullet. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's plasma. It's, it's, yeah. yeah. It's not only, yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, and it has that very, it's a very, very narrow, no matter how big and powerful the beam is, it's really, really tiny. It does, it's not just big chunky bolts like mm, yeah. star, everything comes back to Star Wars. All, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, so I'm going to pass it over to Steven. Ooh, yeah. Well, I am also a paragon of self-control, so I scored the spectacle a 10. <laughs> oh, my gosh. How Hold, dare you, people? You have no self-control. Bless you. <laughs> Holy crap. So, I mean, every step down, right? We're, we're already talking about the ornithopters, which mm-hmm. are just, oh, the, the weight of them on their liftoff when they're going through the startup sequence and they're just perfect. And all the ship design. The ship design feels massive and foreign and alien and it has weight i mean it's all cgi right you have the you have the stuff when house atreides is getting ready to immigrate to arrakis Mm -hmm. and it's rising up out of the water and i mean 
the, the, the every, scale. Every part of it is CGI, and the scale is huge, and it feels real and weighty and lived in and, and old yeah. and all these things. But for me, the big one was costuming. When they land on Arrakis, right, and the, they open the doors and they're getting ready to march out, and everyone, including the Duke, is in armor. And mm-hmm. the armor is... Except for Paul, but... Well, he's... And, you know, and Jessica. No he's not a combatant. He's not, he's not... He's meant to be protected, not fighting. Yeah. But the armor is just so... Because it, it just speaks... This is war. We are, we are marching into our territory, but it is a territory where we are fighting a war. Mm-hmm. And it looks so good. Like, it looks... It has all the elements you want, and it's sci-fi, it's military, it has uh, kind it has of... A, bagpipes. Yo, oh, yeah, the bagpipes hit and just, oh. But, and then you have, you know, the, the earlier scene where the, the Imperial Emissary comes mm-hmm. and they, this big spaceship landed and they're all standing there waiting for this big ceremony and the, the ramp comes down and as it lowers down, there's this, this huge ornate carpet strapped to the ramp as it's coming down. You know, this, is, this, is a, this is not a small object. This is a huge, this is a four, five thousand pound carpet. <laughs> and the the empire is here to say, that's right. I paid however much freaking money to lug a carpet across the galaxy to make an impression on you, so that you can take your ring and make one stamp in wax, and we can fly back. Yeah. And it just the sheer scale of that is just incredible. Mm-hmm. And I oof it. I could go on for a really long time this, but I don't want to take all the points away. So Andrew. I'm going to sling it your way. All right. So for spectacle, because I am actually... A paragon of self-control. paragon of self-control. I gave it a 10. (laughs) (laughs) I actually thought you had a (laughs) 9. It was a 9, and then I was like, no, this this movie deserves more. (laughs) Um, You know, a lot of the points that we've kind of already talked about, um, so I'm just going to kind of go over some of my favorite scenes. Mm Um, one of my biggest ones was the hunter killer scene whenever Paul is in his Ooh, room yeah. mm-hmm. and he's looking at the, uh, the hollow videos of, uh, of Fremen and that yeah, the, kind of the stuff. educational stuff. Yeah. yeah. And then the hunter killer comes in and then, he, and then Paul is kind of does the opposite thing of what you think you should do is actually go walk into, he walked into like all the light mm-hmm. from the, from the hollow projection, which is probably the actual opposite of what you should right, do. Right. Cause but, it just highlights all of his minute yeah. motions. Let me, let me, <laughs> let me upgrade the contrast on myself real quick. Yeah. But so <laughs> the thing that I love about this scene is Denise use of the light to really add a, so much extra depth mm-hmm. into the into this kind of really tense scene because I you know he obviously we're we the audience if you're not familiar with the with the source material we don't know what that is yeah but it's clearly something that is not supposed to be there right and he's looking wishfully at his personal shield that he left over on the bed so like yes. you know it's dangerous yeah and and this is just such a tense scene and you know he's walking you know kind of walking through the the light and it's kind of like going over his face and all this other kind of stuff. And you still have all the dust in the room mm-hmm. and everything. Mm-hmm. And then, then, you know, out of, out, out of nowhere, Mapes opens the door and he just, just grabs it yeah. real quick. And just the tension in the scene is just so fantastic mm-hmm. because it is like you, I mean, you know, when you're just sitting there waiting, you're like, you know, if you haven't read the book, you're like, I don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Cause like at this point, you don't know if anyone's actually safe, mm-hmm. you know, cause it's one of those things where whenever you're watching like a, a Marvel film, you're probably not going to kill the main hero in the first 20 minutes of the film or whatever. Yeah, right. And, but you know, with this, like you don't know. 
Like, well, and it's not even really established that Paul is definitely the main hero of the story. For, I mean, we're, it, we're rooting for Duke Atreides. Yeah, yeah, it could be Duke. It could be Jessica. You don't know. Yeah, and and just like that is just one of those one of those scenes that really sets the the tone of mm-hmm. the danger that is there for mm-hmm. the rest of the film. And I think my my next favorite is probably whenever uh, Duncan Idaho is fighting in the um in the hallway mm-hmm. uh towards the end of the film whenever they're they're kind of on the run. Yeah. And he is just going toe to toe with, you know, multiple Sardaukar at mm-hmm. once. And you can see just his training of of going with like, you know, the slow strikes to to penetrate their shields. Right. And uh it's just it's just a fantastic shot because generally a lot of action films will just cut every time that there's a hit. Mm-hmm. And Denis just doesn't do that. He just he shows you everything that's happening. Yeah. yeah. Well, and especially the the use of the personal shields, where one when a shield has pressure placed on it, or when it's penetrated, it turns red. Mm-hmm. It it kind of let them sell because we we've kind of touched on this with some other stuff, just talking with ourselves within ourselves or whatnot. How some movies they really lean into like the gory aspects. Yeah. Because all the combat at the end of the day, all the combat is very very close range. It's very, because of the shields. Mm-hmm. It's very violent, but you don't really see it. It's all trans- transmitted via the shield of, okay, well, that's a death. Yeah. Because that's, that is a knife breaking because you see it change red. And that without them having to, like, little spray blood everywhere. So it's, it's kind of the thoughtful approach to violence, which is a weird a phrase. A classy like, approach for it. Yeah, there we go. Maybe a classier approach. It's still, everything about it is still, ju- every bit is visceral and violent, and, and the motion is all there without the need to show... You know, you someone's know, throat getting cut splattering open. Splattering blood. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you you just know that's a death. Oh, they are dying. This is happening, et yep. cetera. Yeah, and I, I just it just does such a good job with explaining just kind of how the world works without having to explain exposition mm-hmm. these kind of these kind of like nuances throughout the film. Well, and and throughout, you know, I, I can make a complaint about a lot of maybe the more modern films where it's nighttime. And here's my main character, and maybe there's a little fire over here, and I can't see a thing. <laughs> but we have had so many scenes in this that take place in the dark, especially when they are back on uh, the Atreides Caladan? home planet. Yes, Caladan, which is a very wet. Where we have the, mm-hmm. the juxtaposition of this world is very wet, green. It's it's Scotland. Yeah, they, and they it's, break out back, but it's and it's, and it is it is either dense fog, raining, or they're next to a lake in every single scene mm-hmm. on there to really drive home the you know where you are. It's not Dune. It's not, it is not <laughs> There's Dune. There's no sand here. But well, but even in the dark fog with just a couple of little lights, the every scene, the people you need to see, you can see, you know what is happening. So even when he's making use of like the, the lighting mm-hmm. to, to heighten tension, you still know who it is. You, yep. don't, you don't have that moment where you're questioning, who is this person? Mm-hmm. Well, Why am, the, I, am I worried in this scene? I don't know. It, well, in the, the John Kabar scene um, with the Lady Mohayim is... It's actually a very dark scene, but there's you can see everything that you need to see, mm-hmm. and it it just adds so much extra tension in there because he doesn't he doesn't just cut all these different stuff. He 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 sits there and stares at the actors, and it, and it, it it maybe it slowly wheels in, mm-hmm. and you know in in dead silence, if there was no score to support this, maybe it's a uh, kind of quiet. But but Hans is there for us. We'll, we'll get to that a little <laughs> he's later. Yeah. But he's there, the boy. <laughs> and I mean, speaking of the the sound design, we haven't even touched on the use of the voice yet. 
And Ooh. that was, oh, it's it's the, the multi-layered, many voices speaking the same thing at once with the very commanding tone mm-hmm. of the, the um, I want to say I said I, we're getting completely Ooh, off. Wrong, the, wrong. The uh, Benny Gesserit. Benny Gesserit. There we go. Thank you. Um, with the, <laughs> it's, it's kind of. Yeah, I mean, it's basically the same, same concept. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but when the the Benny Gesserit used their their ability to to kind of feel out a person and then sort of get the right tone, tone to command yeah. them with, and the way that they uh, portrayed that on screen was just like like the first time that you hear it, it it, it shocks you. It's frightening. Yeah, it's, it's in your face. Auditorily speaking, yeah, and <laughs> <laughs> and there's there's a little bit of, of camera stuff going on, yeah. when when it hits, um, but it's it it really like that sound design element really drives home and sells the power of these individuals, mm-hmm. which can be understated in in a way that makes you not really understand, right? And and in the book, maybe you know, reading the book, you're like, well, well, this is really powerful, and how you could represent that on screen. I mean, it could have been the force, right? It could have been mm-hmm. anything like the the hand wave. Well, these are not the droids you're looking for. It could have just as easily been something like that. But the the primal base layer they put down on it when it hits, yeah. because ultimately, I mean, the Benny Gesserit are all women, mm-hmm. and Jessica is is not a particularly intimidating individual. And then she speaks, and that lands, and she's like, "Oh, yeah, <laughs> that is and, that is something." And and the the pivotal scene in the film where she has to use it to save herself and Paul. And like she, once Paul manages to, 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 you know, barely eke out, barely do it just enough to where he gets the guard to, to release her gag. And then they are just putty in her hands and she is ruthless and merciless in the use of her power to, uh, in, in self-defense. And it, it's, it was really, really well done. Yeah. Well, I think we've, uh. Hit, hit around most everything we want on spectacle. Yes. No, maybe so. Yep. Things fine to me. So moving forward, next up in our list is the performance. So for this, we are looking at not just the casting choices, but how well the actors are doing on screen, how well they're selling us on these characters. Yeah. And an important caveat here is plot is coming up later. So we are really trying to seek to divide the actual performance away from the writing. So if you have someone who is doing a good job and they weren't given a whole lot to work with, trying to not penalize there. Or the vice versa of, hey, this is a really rich, interesting, deep character, and you're just you 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 you're a plank. We're gonna punish you for it, right? Yeah, and that, mm-hmm. that's that's really where we're trying to land. So I'm gonna kick this over to Andrew to start. Okay. Uh, so for performance, I did a nine. Um, right. I you know I I felt that uh, Paul um, uh, Timothy Chalamet's um, choice as an actor for for Paul was just fantastic. He he really fits the uh, the smoldering teen that, you know, just he he just has this look. And he's also and he's also really age. the first uh Paul that we've gotten on screen that kind of fits the physical description from the book. Well, I mean, honestly, the because like, like he's a he's a he's a, a scrawny kid. To yeah, start yeah. With. yeah. The, um, the guy in David Lynch is he's a little too bulky. He's a little too he, he's a little too bulky, but they or actually have old. basically the same look, um, mm-hmm. just like with the kind of like ruffly hair mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. But uh, Timothy just does such a fantastic job. And I mean, like there was a couple couple moments that um, at the beginning it, it kind of felt that he didn't really have a lot to work with. Just because, like, you know, he was 
he was a little um there's just wasn't a lot for him to just mm-hmm. do but then the second that they get into the desert and he has to take control to make sure that him and Jessica survive especially in the tent whenever he has the vision mm-hmm. um and kind of like the watershed moment for yeah. him mm-hmm. of of him really coming into his messiah level kind of visions and that kind of stuff uh, really start showing his range mm-hmm. uh, um, as an actor. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, it's kind of one of those things, um, just moving over to, like, Duncan Idaho, uh, which is Jason Momoa. Mm-hmm. Uh, he kind of plays the same character in, in most of all of his films. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing here, because Duncan Idaho's character is... is well, he's is, is just, it's a good casting. Yeah, it's right? just a great like, casting for like it. Like, he is going to do what he's going to do, but in this case, that's exactly what we want him to do, so it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I would absolutely say that um, uh, Oscar Isaac as Duke Le- Leto Atreides is so just good. fantastic. Oh, yeah. so ne- good. Never shave that man again. No more, no more <laughs> clean-shaven Poe. Like, we're moving away from this. Like, yeah, he, like he's give he's me got a feudal that, like, lord. The, good grief. Yeah, he's he's just got the 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 chin um and the jawline for that really nice beard, like that that <laughs> ducal beard. <laughs> a, f- a nice feudal beard here. Yeah. <laughs> uh so yeah, what about you, Steven? Jump jumping in here. Uh, I gave the casting a nine. Okay. So overall, really good, really well done. You know, I, I, like you said, you know. Oscar Isaac, Momoa, Chalamet, these people, they're all, they're in the right place and they're doing the right things. Um, I'll say that, I think, uh, and I've forgotten her first name, but Ferguson. Yeah. Uh, she's playing Jessica. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great, great job. And I think that they also maybe gave her a little more to work with than the book would have given. Definitely. I mean, because, so Herbert, um, you know, this was written in 1967. Seven, something yeah. like that, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's definitely one of those where a lot of books around that time maybe not maybe would maybe not utilize their female characters as much as a lot of people do now or yeah. that we well, would want. I mean sci-fi has always kind of been the bastion of progressivism yeah. when you have that because you you see a lot in a lot of sci-fi Cuz it's supposed to be future. Right. Well how, how do you know it's sci-fi? Well the military is very much so an even split of men and women these yeah. kind of things. But I think you know there there are, we'll get into it with the plot talk but there's maybe a little bit of added scenes where she got maybe a little more to work with and yeah. she does a phenomenal job with it. Especially um, whenever Paul is taking the test and she is on the other side mm-hmm. of the door. Oh yeah. Um, doing the, basically what, what in the book is Paul's mono, inner monologue. The, of the mantra. The, yeah. The yeah. mantra of fear. And then she's doing it and it is just. Oh, because like fantastic. she's, she, she understands that if her son who she's been training fails this test, he just dies. He just dies. Yeah. Right. And so like she is trying to, control the panic that is seizing her in the, in that moment of total uncertainty. Yeah. Well, and, and one of the reasons why Dune was the, the unadaptable book, right, is that so much of it takes place in the characters' minds. Mm-hmm. So how do you express these emotions? How do you, how do you get that without everyone wi- breathy whispering to themselves, <laughs> hi, 1984, looking at you? <laughs> like, how do you express these, these things that are going on? And, and they do a fantastic job of that. Yeah. Uh, another another one, you know, maybe the it's more just a question of the perfect casting, right? Josh Brolin. Yeah. As, oh, he he was great as um um oh, I've, I've totally blanked on the character's name. Oh my gosh. Gurney Hallett? Yes. There, ah, there it is. Gurney. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, it just just a, a really great casting and handles it really well, you know, the the scene with the 
the imperial delegate landing and, and you have you know Isaac telling smile, smile gurney, smile, gurney. <laughs> I am smile it's just so good yeah. and and his his interactions you have you have uh Chalamet and Momoa interacting where they're kind of the buddy buddy yeah and then Momoa goes off on his mission and now you have Brolin steps in as kind of well I'm I'm taking I'm picking up your training in the meantime yep and then their chemistry and how well they interact with each other is great it just I, there's there's very few negatives I think maybe if I had to to pick it one or two, uh, you know, Skarsgård as Baron Harkonnen or Harkonnen mm-hmm. is maybe a, a little wasted just because he gets the fat suit and so it kind of limits the range of expressiveness. And then the character itself just isn't very expressive. Yeah. He's fairly deliberate, methodical, slow, uh, ponderous maybe is the, the word we're looking for here. Yeah. Uh, in his movement, so maybe maybe and, that, and that hurts it, that, it, a little that bit. does engender a certain kind of menace. It, it's, it's it's its own kind of menace, and it's not that he doesn't project it. It's just Skarsgård is capable of a lot of things. Yeah, and this is kind of a, a fairly narrow band for him to work with him. It's same kind of thing with um, with David Bautista, who was um, um, his. Uh, his his it's his nephew, but yeah. I blanked on uh, Raban. Raban, yes. yeah. Uh, I Joel was thinking here, Fade Joel. Ralph, but Fade Ralph isn't. Fade Ralph, I have, I have sir, no. not appearing in this <laughs> film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Joel. Uh, well, I also gave the performance a nine. Yeah. Uh, I just, I mean, you guys took all the points away, right? Like it's, it's, you go down the list of the major characters, and every single one of them that had an emotionally relevant scene, they they removed a lot of subplots from the book, which mm-hmm. would have allowed. Uh, Thufir Howitt, the Spymaster's yeah. character, to really shine and really like show his stuff. So, like most of his stuff was removed. Uh, also, Doctor Ua, Doctor Ua, Ua. Um, and so like you didn't really get a window into them. Mm-hmm. So they um, didn't really just have a lot of opportunity, right? To, there, there, to... there just wasn't wasn't much there. Yeah, uh, but everything else, they they absolutely one hundred percent sold uh, everything that that they were trying to get across. You understood their motivations. You understood what they were going through, the emotions that they were experiencing at the time. It was just fantastic. Yep. Yeah. I, I know what it is. That when, I'm, when I'm trying to think of Scars, it kind of the limited role feel. Mm-hmm. So going back to No Way Home, right? Yeah. When you have someone like Defoe on screen and he gets to pivot back and forth from the two things, that, that's a huge range to cover. Mm-hmm. And, and being able to jump from one side of it to the other is kind of him showing off. Essentially. Yeah. And the character lets him show off. And it's not that the Baron should have those swings. It's just that that role, Skarsgård is capable of those swings right. and he doesn't get to showcase it there. Yeah. yeah. So I think I, maybe that's where I'm thinking. It's kind of almost like you could have put, you could have had someone else and maybe even paid a little less and it probably would have been okay just because the character is the suit and the the movement more than yeah. anything. Well, and, and we have to assume that for part two, we're going to get a lot more interaction with him because he's no longer the the menace of just kind of like the overarching plot for the movie he is now the owner of arrakis again mm-hmm. and he Unless is going to have it right there ah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's going he's going to have a direct uh, direct line um because we already know that fade ralph is going to be in the next film and has fade ralph been cast have i don't know we, we have not seen a casting for him but um, it has been confirmed that he will be in the film i'll, I'll be yeah. intrigued to see who they pick there. yeah but anyway i would i would only say that i would the 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 character of Cheney, who in part one really only appears in Paul's visions, and then a little mm-hmm. bit at the end, uh, 
the performance from Zendaya for this character was was adequate, but like and and you know dur- during during the the dream sequences or the visions, there's I mean she's just like tell us how much she she's can just do. looking yeah. stare, right. Stare, like there's not stare <laughs> off into the distance and look like you're um, and then look yeah. behind you. Right? Yeah, and so but like you you get to the end where where she has her first actual physical meeting with Paul, and there there wasn't a lot there. It was a very short scene. Um, but also like she didn't, it didn't feel like she added a whole lot to it. So like I was, I would hope for just a little bit more there. Um, but it's such a tiny nitpick. Well, and, and there's just, there's a lot of screen time devoted to her, but it's all silent and it's all doing the three, same three motions basically, yeah, which is yeah. the smolder into the distance and then look over your shoulder thing. Well, and there's, then, just, there's, then, there's no, nothing to work with. Yeah. There. Yeah. Well, you know, then you have Hans Zimmer's track just, <laughs> over, you know, but yeah, I mean, you, you could have just not paid her to be there and put a put a hood over it and just had anybody there, yeah, and been probably okay. Uh, before we jump for, I know you're ready to go, but uh, <laughs> Dr. Keynes as well, Keynes, 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 Keynes. Y'all are the ones that listen to the audio <laughs> book. I just make it up as I go along. All right, all right, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think that that role ultimately gets more to work with. In this, it's a different way to work with it because in the book you get other interactions, but this, especially the way that it was, she goes out as a character. Yeah, you get to really sell there with without including like the the whole subplot that 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 kind of exemplified itself in like the dinner party scene. Yeah, the, in, in the, the book, we'll we'll get to it in the plot, but the dinner party scene not being in there was probably a loss. Yeah, because because you don't you don't really get to know the local characters mm-hmm. as much in the the pre-action environment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you do get at least a little bit of the interaction there in the ornithopter when we have the big scene with the uh, spice miner that gets mm-hmm. attacked by mm-hmm. the, the worm. And you get you get some of it there, but I think really she shines late as she kind of helps yeah. the escape and then her own uh, resolution, I right. guess Because we'll there's, there's the... The, the whole thing of I'm I'm being instructed to betray these people and mm-hmm. I'm actually really growing to I, I like them kind and of respect like them, them and who yeah. they are. Yeah. 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 All right. So which again, we, we covered, you know, you, we, we missed out on some of that ability to develop some of that. Which mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get into that. So going forward, it is time to score the score. <laughs> so this is the music, the composition, the impact it has on the movie. How well is it used? Does it add? Does it detract? Etc. So I am going to toss this over to Joel first because we, right. we took all the good points last time, Andrew. I'll yep. let Joel have first first bite. So the score by Hans Zimmer was absolutely phenomenal. But what's your score? Score? It was a nine, okay. and the only reason that it is not a ten, and this has nothing to do with the composition, it has to do with how it was applied in the film. The mixing. Is, the mixing, the mixing yeah. is that there are important scenes where the music drowns out the dialogue and unless you have subtitles you're not you may not know what's going on <laughs> so specifically maybe the the scene in the tent the scene in yeah so so specifically the scene in the tent where paul is having his his second direct contact with spice spice uh, unfiltered melange and <laughs> those are words and <laughs> Uh, and um, he's, you know, he's having uncontrolled visions and mm-hmm. he is reacting to all of the, cause like he's been in, in survival mode. This is the first time that they've had time to decompress since they, 
um, frantically were trying to escape with their lives. And he's going through all of this and he's screaming and shouting his mother, you did this to me. You made me a freak. Mm -hmm. Um, And he is, he is attempting to relay to us, the audience, a interpretation of the, the flashes and images that we're seeing on the screen of his visions where he's seeing the, 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 the wars that will, that will happen, will happen possibly. Right. Yeah. Like this is, this is a possible is, future is that he is future. seeing. Yeah. And, and he's ex- trying to explain this and it's, it's kind of a, a stream of consciousness flow of words that are coming well, out of his mouth. It's the closest you get to kind of in the book where you have the internal monologue. Yeah. Cause he's, he's, he's attempting to just put all this exposition out and without and, breathy whispering. And the music that is attempting to match the, the, the intensity, intensity of the scenes that we're seeing completely overwhelms his dialogue there. Yeah. And so it's, it's very difficult to, to make it through. And so I, that is the only reason I am not giving this a 10 man, like a 25, 30 seconds out of a two, two and a half. Well, hour I mean, movie. It, it kind of does that a couple other times in the film, but it that's does, probably yeah. the, the most egregious case. Right. In, that, in this. That's, that's the easiest example to say, Hey, the music might be costing me learning some words. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and especially in, in such a, in a, in a film that is, already very sparing with what it tells you. Mm-hmm. Every piece of dialogue is so important yeah. that you yeah. can't miss a single thing. Otherwise, then you're just have no idea what's going on. Yeah. So, Steven? Oh, I get to go. Well, unlike Joel, I did not go for the nine. I went for the ten. <laughs> uh, this is just, ooh, this is Hans Zimmer, top of his game, cranking, cranking the shepherd tones in there, building the tension, you know, you get the 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 feeling of the perpetual rise mm-hmm. as the tension builds. I mean, it's, it's how you play off some of these scenes where there's no real dialogue and it's it's people moving or whatnot. And maybe prior to the uh, Harkonnen invasion, mm-hmm. where, you, where you have big explosions, the easy sell, right? But you have the bits with Oscar Isaac in the hallway. When he's betrayed, you have all the, the tension that's going on in yeah. there. And, you know, when the sandworm attacks the uh, the crawler, mm-hmm. you have all the, the build there. <laughs> you, when when Paul has, you know, some spice gasms, you have all the build there, you know, sometimes for a detriment, but it's there. And you know it's there. And that I think that was one of the big advantages of seeing it in an IMAX or just in a big theater with a good functioning sound system. Is you really get the pressure, the the intensity of all of that mm-hmm. mixed in with some other. It's not all just the whole time. And there's there's I know Andrew's going to cover it, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna touch on it just before I send it to his way. But there's some really good, interesting, very it's familiar but also very alien choral bits. Yeah, where where this is it's very much so established. Yes, these are sounds you could hear somewhere on Earth, but you'd have to be standing in three different places at once to hear it in the way that it's being presented. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to throw it to Andrew. Well, so um, I gave score a nine, and um, I knocked it a point, but not for the same reason that Joel did. Um, I knocked it a point mostly just because Hans Zimmer is in a lot of films, and he, he composes a lot of stuff, and he's a fantastic composer. He's yeah. one of my favorites. However... He's also in a lot of films, <laughs> and the the problem with that is sometimes a lot. You, if you are not intimately familiar with a lot of his other stuff, you may just feel that 
he is kind of like a one note composer where like if you if you listen to like the um like the dark knight soundtrack mm-hmm. and dark knight rises that kind of stuff and then you move over to something like interstellar you can still feel a lot of those or, kind or of or inceptions or inception yeah. that kind of stuff you can still feel a lot of those those same derivative tones mm-hmm. and that is not going to be for everyone and that's okay but you know it's definitely one of those things where like uh, I I think that Dune is probably one of his best soundtracks that he's done. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not the best, but it's very very close. Man, now I just want to go listen to the Interstellar soundtrack again. Oh, the Interstellar soundtrack is just <laughs> fantastic. so many good options. Uh, and and a fun thing too is he he um, one of the things that I really enjoyed that he did was he kind of pulled. Uh, so in Interstellar, there's this scene where they're on a on a really small planet that has um, these tidal waves that kind of mm-hmm. go across the planet. And the the sound that he has there is just kind of like this ticking like clock because, you know, basically every tick is another, I think, like day or year or something yeah, like time, that. Time is very accelerated um, at that point. On, yeah. on Earth while they're on there. So that, that time is ticking. And then it's also kind of like a timer coming down to when this tidal wave comes and hits them because they think it's mountains, but it's actually not. It's just a big tidal wave. So while, while these, you know, these ticks and stuff are happening and they're kind of like looking at this tidal wave uh, coming... Uh, Zimmer just does a fantastic job of building up this tension mm-hmm. in this scene. And my favorite thing that he did to kind of like, I'd say call back to that, but also utilize that is the scene when the sandworm comes to the crawler mm-hmm. and basically cult and, you know, eats it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, because whenever it's coming, he's actually using almost the exact same technique to to build up this really heavy tension while... Duke Leto Atreides is trying to evacuate these people from the crawler mm-hmm. and he's trying to figure out, you know, where everyone is, where his son is, and they're trying to, you know, get everyone out. And while this is happening, you just have like this this massive score that is just building and building and building and building. And then when they finally have the worm show up and then Paul and Gurney Halleck are running back to the Thopter and then they all just kind of like basically it vibrates the sand and they all just, they both just kind of fall down. Yeah. And they're just like, oh, this is really bad. Yeah. Like we have no chance here. Like you have this massive score that is finally um, giving you the payoff that you were expecting for the past four minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and it is a really long four minutes of this happening. And uh, it's just, ah, it's just fantastic. I mean, you, I mean, it's, it's definitely one of my favorite scenes in like a film that I've seen in, you know, probably the last decade. I, I love how Andrew's like, well, I gave him a nine and I took a point away because I like him. He's my favorite, but he's everywhere. And I'm tired of them giving me what I want all the time. <laughs> and that's, well, that's basically what you said. I, I'm, I'm giving a point for the other people that may not necessarily like Hans Zimmer as much as I do. I mean, no, that's fair. If, if Hans Zimmer isn't your cup of tea and what he does isn't your cup of tea, you're going to suffer. Yeah. Because like, yeah. there's no escaping that this is a Hans Zimmer score. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that that's kind of where I, I knocked a point. Otherwise, it would just be a ten because, like, it's like Hans Zimmer is one of my favorite composers. Mm-hmm. Well, see, I just I just happen to like the music. I just like what's going on. Yeah, that's and fine. Ten, you, you do whatever you want. I, I did. I sure <laughs> did. It's already been it's been tallied up. You can't take it back. Okay. So moving forward. Yep. We are going back to the plot, which is to talk about the plot. Joel, you want to give us a definition of plot? So plot is the things that happen. Didn't we just do this last episode? We did. Okay. We're doing it again. So, Repetition. Plot, plots, the stuff that happens. 
uh, ultimately, plot is is a, the sequence of events to pull you along through the story and showcase the characters and the setting and uh, help you suspend your disbelief and get immersed into the story. Right. So a big key to that is going to be consistency, not having plot holes, not having weird things that kick you out of the story, mm-hmm. things along those lines. So let's see. I think we started with Joel last time. So go to me, I guess. Oh, Andrew wants it. I'm going to give it to Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I gave plot a seven. All right. Um, and I, I mean, overall, like for quotation marks, an unadaptable source material. Right. They, Denis just did a fantastic job of writing the the script to be a, a pretty tight, concise flow. And when you're when you're trying to adapt Dune, it's such a dense book. Like Frank Herbert is a fantastic world builder. And the problem is he's a fantastic world builder. Mm-hmm. So there's so much to cover and there's so mm-hmm. many different little factions and other little nuances of what the Benny Gesserit are trying to do and uh, what you know, what Jessica is also trying to do outside of what the Bene Gesserit are wanting mm-hmm. to do, and then why the Harkonnens are kind of getting kicked off of Doom, but they're actually really not because the Emperor's helping them. There's so many small little nuances that if you watch like David Lynch's film, the 1984, it just gets lost so quickly in the fray because he's trying to add so much stuff into the film to try and basically recreate exactly what's happening in the book. He's absolutely cramming material into a two-hour movie in 84. And Denis kind of takes that and he says, okay, well, we've already seen what doesn't work. So let's take, you know, kind not the spark notes, because that's a disservice to what he did. But he said, you know, he says, okay, we're going to take the overall look here and we're going to take the stuff that really works. Yeah. That is going to going to be really important for later on for part two and all these other kind of things. And we're going to make sure that those are the most important parts that we get through. Mm-hmm. And it adds a, he adds a little bit of stuff for Jessica and a couple extra scenes with the Bene Gesserit so you don't have to wonder kind of what's happening. Yeah. And um, I, I mean, probably the only real knock that I gave it was just the fact that kind of where it ends is just a weird spot to end it a little bit. And then also they left out the um, the dining room banquet the, the, scene, the mm-hmm. dinner party, dinner party, yeah, yeah. yeah it 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 suffers a little. I'm I'm just gonna jump in, jumping, uh, jumping, did it. Uh, so I also gave it a seven for some similar reasons. Yeah. So from from the start, I think, uh, and this maybe relates more back to spectacle, and I just missed the chance, but I'm gonna say it now. Even before you get the title right, you get the. Uh, blurb across the screen of dreams are messages from the deep Mm -hmm. and like right from that moment you know okay they've they've got a feel for how this movie should run and what what it's going to feel like and be and throughout the plot you get most of that uh joel i'm going to leave you um the the added scene that works Mm -hmm. i'll let you cover that but what i'm going to hit on is Kind of what Andrew was saying was... I'm really the, the, wondering which scene he's talking about, but that's okay. <laughs> I mean, if I have to tell you what it is, I'll t- if, you, if you can't get it, I'll tell you. Okay. But um, kind of what Andrew was saying is the, the ending's a little odd in, that, in its placement, and I think they kind of miss an opportunity. You have kind of the false ending syndrome going on where mm-hmm. you have a big climactic battle. It, it has a little bit of a Return of the King syndrome. Yeah, it just, it just 
oh, well, this is the end. Okay, well, they're here now. Well, this is the end. Well, they're here now. And especially if you've read the book before and you know this isn't actually the end of the book. Mm -hmm. So he has to make some kind of artificial break somewhere. Yeah. The the feeling for that last maybe 25 or 30 minutes of the movie is just, oh, my gosh, get somewhere. Like, get them somewhere where you can end it. And I think they missed a little there because you end it post the duel with the Fremen. Mm -hmm. And I think that that would have actually been a really great Opening, opening scene. right, for part two, because you got to get that hook, you got to get that first action, you got to get things happening, moving along. And if they had cut it earlier, say, let's get them into the tent post-battle, give him, get the visions, get this done, and get them a little bit, you know, maybe a little settled, and they get out of the tent that next morning, life has to move on, they both look into the distance, and... Boom scene. Or after they they escape, Kynes dies. They escape in the other Thopter, mm -hmm. and then they, they go through the storm. They land in the storm. They're like, all right, we're in the desert now. Yeah, or, or even send them into the into the storm, and you don't even know if they live. Leave, give me a cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> People will be so be mad. Brutal. <laughs> but you know what? I think if they had done something like that and kind of snatched back the last 20, 25 minutes of the movie or so, you would have had an opportunity to really get into some of the, the intrigue that happens prior to, because mm -hmm. it's, like we've said, it's a slow, deliberate, thoughtful movie, so maybe it's not for everyone, but you would have kind of the the intrigue that happens in the book that really involves uh, Thufir. Yeah, and Thufir. Thufir, Hawat. Yeah. Yeah. And then also maybe flesh out Dr. Yue a little more so mm -hmm. that his betrayal makes more sense, because yeah. the whole the whole idea is he has the the unbreakable... It's kind of like, like the, the conditioning, the Hippocratic oath taken to an extreme degree, right? Yeah, where he is, he's, he has he's, imperi he's this imperially trained doctor that he is he is qualified to see to and hold the life of the emperor in his hands. So he is completely beyond his trustworthiness is completely beyond question, beyond reproach. Which is why the him being the point of betrayal is such a huge deal. Yeah, yeah. So they they yeah. kind of missed the ability to really drive that in by just kind of jumping forward. And in not having, I think the the dinner party not being there, you miss some. You miss again some, some nuance with the characters. Well, and and you just you miss the ability to really establish that this is these are as as near as we can tell compared to what they've lived under the good guys. Yeah. And then the flip side to that is you don't have uh, Fedrotha. You don't get as much interaction with the Harkonnens, interaction with each other. Mm -hmm. So you don't really get that side. You know the. We talk about all the building of tension with the music, right? But when the audience knows something that the protagonist doesn't know, that's its own form of tension because yeah. we can see the cliff coming and they can't, and you have to be concerned for it. But they don't ever really get the opportunity to have these conversations with the bad guys where the bad guys are saying, hey, I don't like this person. This is what I'm going to do. and This is my plan. They 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 have I mean, that one you get, scene you get where he he's you know he's bit. floating menacingly. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, well, you get a little bit menacingly. I'm sorry, menacingly, but you don't, but you just don't get the full. I think you you miss a little bit of the full impact there. So that's 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 where my points are coming down. Yeah, but I mean, for what it is, for two and a half hours, for the amount of material they have to cover, the amount of world they have to build. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a pretty, and it's it's a real world. That thing feels. Every, the ships, all these pieces in it feel real, and they feel... I, I, tactile? Yeah, tactile. Yeah. Well, you have the I'm whole... Like they have weight. Well, you have the whole interaction, right, of, well, the last guns can't be used all the time because of shields, because mm -hmm. if you hit a, hit a shield with the laser, it causes essentially a, a nuclear reaction, an explosion 
comparable. But Which you can't, they never touch on. They Yeah, they miss it. Yeah. But you can't have that because on Arrakis, the shields attract worms. Mm-hmm. So you have to be careful with where you're using the shields. And these kinds of gives and takes, well, now you can't use the best weapon, you, the best range weapon you could to penetrate even individual shields. So now we're stuck using... You know, we're flying across the galaxy to stab someone, right? Yeah. <laughs> but but it, it has its own type of logic because they build that in. They, they they I won't say they showcase it, but they get into it and they talk about, you know, yeah. the quick blade versus the slow blade and these things. So so you get a lot of that world building, not just in terms of this is a building, but also in terms of this is history and this is people's reaction to how history, et cetera, mm-hmm. is. So all right, I'm gonna push it over to Joel. Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna buck the trend and I'm I actually give it an eight. So a little, little high, a little high road. Uh, I thought starting starting out with the the good, there were points in the film where it was very clear that Villeneuve was able to distill the original mm-hmm. novel down to its essence. Yeah, and then said, "Okay, I'm going to take this essence and I'm going to put it in movie form." Right, and these scenes really jumped out to me in the the Ganjabar test, Jamgabar. Jamjabar. Oh yeah, yep. never mind. Yep. World of Warcraft. It's the is, world of Warcraft has thing. ruined yes. me for for years of rating. I'm sorry. You know, I meant to listen to that when you said it the first time, but you did it so fast, and I was like, I don't know if I can correct. That. I'm just gonna let it slide. Uh, but anyway, so like reading through the book the first time, I really i I got to the end of that, and I really didn't understand what that was about. And I got to the end of the book, and I still didn't understand what that was about. And with a single sentence in of, of dialogue in that scene, uh, they were able to explain it in, in a way that I could absorb it. And, and cause they, they said like, if you can't, you, you have this power that your mother gave you that she shouldn't have. And we can't control you because you were supposed to be a girl and you would come be one of us, but you're not going to be. And if you can't, control if you can't exert enough self-control in this situation then you are too dangerous to be left on the board yep right and and like that's just just didn't come through to me in the trappings of the narrative of the book and um he, he does write it really weird yeah and the, yeah, there there are moments of, of like this is getting kind of trippy and i'm not sure and in shortly where after that, where uh, Jessica is explaining to Paul the whole conspiracy mm-hmm. surrounding bringing about the Kwisatz Haderach, the, the the breeding program, yeah, and and like it was it was all in the book, it was all steeped in in mysticism and all of this stuff. Whereas in the film, they were able to peel back the the layers and say, look, this is a um, a eugenics design project that has been going on <laughs> for millennia. And like, this is, this is, we, we, we have these prophecies about this person, not because we've seen the future and we know that he will be there. It's because we have worked to bring about the future and, and, and we are, and it. we are confident yeah. that we will be successful. Yeah. The, the, the prophecies aren't a prediction of the future. The prophecies are the design specification goals we're attempting to meet. <laughs> right. And, and, <laughs> It's, pro- it's bullet point number four on project sheet three. We're, we're yeah. gonna bring out the PowerPoint real quick. <laughs> uh, and it's and it's they they understand what the capabilities are going to be because that was the design all along. Right. 
And and those kind of things, I think, being able to condense these these grand topics into very simple bullet points that are conveyed via dialogue really, really helped translate this untranslatable material. Yeah. And, and every time that we have these moments where, because you can get caught up in this problem of, I have to tell you this world, all this exposition has to happen. Yeah. But every time we get these pieces of dialogue, they do a really good job, even though maybe the figures within it are static of putting the camera in an interesting way, lighting in an interesting way, so it's not just two people sitting in chairs talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so one thing I'll say, you know, because we kind of riffed on the the ending of the movie because it, it feels kind of like a non-ending, which it, it really it is, but it's more of just a an extension of the general feel of, of kind of where the, the movie's going, mm-hmm. the next movie's going to go. And at the time, they didn't know that there was going to be another movie. Mm-hmm. So you had to end True. it at least some point to where if there was never going to be another <laughs> film, you could at least have an idea that, okay, Paul and, and Jessica are in a spot to where they clearly have a, a general goal of where to go. Even mm-hmm. though we're not going to you know, go super into detail, you can at least extrapolate from that last scene of like, Okay, you know, clearly there's there's desert power and all this other kind of stuff. I mean, obviously, if they weren't sure, then you should have just flown them into the storm and cut the <laughs> And then it's like, oh, there's not another part two. Well, I guess they die. <laughs> um, but but beyond that, sad story. No, uh, shame, real shame. <laughs> one of my one of my favorite scenes in the movie was the final knife fight between Jameis and Paul, mm. just because uh, you you start the movie out with this massive scale of where they're, you know, they're, they're traversing different planets. They're going across this, uh, you know, the, the galaxy or where, you know, however far they're going. And they, you know, then kind of scale it down a little bit whenever the Harkonnens come and attack and sack, um, Eric Keen. Mm-hmm. And then you scale it down even more to where it's just Jessica and Paul. And then you finally get the final conflict of the film, which is just Jameis and Paul in a night fight. Mm-hmm. And that was a terrifying, like, experience. Yeah. Just because, like, like the way he films it is so up close and personal. And, mm-hmm. and, and the definition of a knife fight is up close and personal. Yeah. And I, I think that it, it, for people that were expecting this massive space opera final battle, it's probably a little bit of a disappointment. Just because they're, you know, they're expecting big explosions and, you know, Paul finally getting, you know, getting his knife into Harkonnen, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And that's not what they got. They just got this knife fight with this random dude yeah. <laughs> in the desert. <laughs> in the desert. And um, as I've been, you know, over the years after I read the books and stuff like that, and, you know, people ask me, it's like, oh, you know, should I read Dune? And I'm like, well, if you like knife fights, read Dune. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's it's definitely one of those things where, like, but when you see it in, on film, it just has such a has a different feel to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, I I liked how it ended, even though like I I also don't think that it should have ended there. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I really liked the way the knife fight was done. Yeah. I just think it would have been really cool to start book or part two with that. Say, ex- ex- you don't have to change anything. You just cut it earlier, keep those scenes as they were, just push it into the yeah. other one, and we're we're golden. Like, Let's go. Mm-hmm. So, Joel, you didn't you didn't grab my gift. I put it out there. You didn't take it. I, I didn't take it. I no. did. I do. I do have a a ding because oh. that, that we oh. haven't really touched go, on yet. Go for a ding, and then I'll I'll, I'll give a positive after yeah. that. I I felt like the whole 
conflict between the Harkonnens and the Atreides really suffered in this telling of the story by the Harkonnens being kind of reduced to a generic, just kind of gross evil, right? Right. Yeah. Where where you have he sits in slime. He's a bad guy. Right. Exactly. Right. Where, whereas yeah. whereas in the book, Baron Harkonnen is a a scheming mob boss, right? Who is orchestrating everything so that his enemies die, but his hands remain clean. Right. And, and there's no point where the imperial truthsayer can sit him down and say, did you do this? And he has to lie. And yeah. it's always going to be and true. That actually just, um, this is just one more ding um, that I forgot to add oh, earlier. We're getting but dingy now. Whenever, um, uh, in the book, whenever he, whenever Huey dies, it's Piter that kills him. Yeah. And mm-hmm. not Harkonnen because he can't get his hands dirty. Because right. he does, if he has to go in front of an Emperor's he's got, truth he's sayer, got He's got to be able to testify under oath. Yeah. And then <laughs> did, in did the, you kill him? I sure didn't. Yeah. Uh, and then in the book or in the movie, he just com- like they kind of just completely go over that and, and just he just had they just have him kill him. Which is which leads to yet another plot hole, which <laughs> is the whole UA giving uh Leto the tooth, right? Yeah. Because in the book, he's like, um, I'm I'm giving this to you so that you can get your revenge. I need you to kill a man for me, even though I'm betraying you. Like this is this yep. is we're all in a really bad situation, and I'm giving you one final out, right? Yep. Um, but he says right then and there in the book, I am a turncoat. They know I'm a turncoat. They will not let me close to him. Right. There yep. is no way that I can exact this revenge on my own. Yeah. So I'm using you to do it. But in the film, like he was right there. Like he could have done. That. Yeah. And he, <laughs> he didn't even have a shield by well. then. Yeah. yeah. He didn't have his shield on by then. Anyways. Yeah. All right. So positive. You got the positive. Joel didn't take it. I'm taking it. I didn't, I didn't take it. So it come, it came up earlier. You reminded me of it. You're talking about how the way they represented the voice. So oh, we yeah. have an added oh, scene yeah, yeah, that's yeah. not in the book, which is Jessica and Paul at breakfast. breakfast. Right. Really banal. Banal. Normal. Banal. It's banal. banal. Whatever. But I'm gonna have some plain conversation. Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna drop us some cream cheese on <laughs> a bagel. We're gonna be breaking Batman's back all over the place. Oh boy. <laughs> anyways. <laughs> anyways. And in that, Spoilers. <laughs> because we haven't really gotten much on. Well, how is he trained, right? Yeah. Or what does this training entail? What is going on, etc. Well, we we get the training there. In a way, in a lot of ways, that we never get in the book, and it's a it's a pretty short, simple scene where yeah. she is coaching him on the voice. How do you use it? How are you practice? T- show it to me. Show me what you've got. And he 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 gives his effort, and then she drops her bomb on him, basically mm-hmm. of what what a fully trained Bene Gesserit can do. And it's such an impact because it's it's a fairly short scene. And you you stuff a lot into it. Well, you, you also get an insight into their relationship mm-hmm. as well, where the in the book, I mean, like the book is very um, their relationship is very important, um, mm-hmm. just just of how they interact and and kind of like how how they look at each other, and that that scene, him just adding it in there at the beginning, really gives you a good sense of of how they're they're supposed to interact for the rest of the film mm-hmm. at least because it, it changes as the as the book goes on and as the next movies will go on too but um yet yeah, the it it also it also shows 
that scene just kind of shows Paul being a teenager mm-hmm. where he's like, come on. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's 7 a.m. You yeah. woke me up to, it's Saturday. Why am I already up? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I think on that note, we've hit about everything we want to hit. Yeah. Any, any hopes for part two? Any, any desires? Um, I hope that they get Sting for Fade Ralpha. Oh gosh, <laughs> hush. Um, I mean, like we, we can go over. I mean, we kind of go over, went over some of our favorite parts, but we can at least give our our faithfulness. Yeah. Score. Oh, I, I'm trying to skip away from faithfulness. Yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll give it to Joel first here. For uh, I give it an eight for faithfulness. Um, you know, we've talked about not really having enough time to develop things, and like you have to condense going from a novel to a film. Yeah. That's just, that's just all there is to it. A lot of content. But there were, there were in some of the cases, particularly with the, the way that the Harkonnens were portrayed, not really having any sort of insight into UA's motivations, uh, other than just the very basic, they have my wife. And, and you know, in the, in the book, it's a lot more nuanced and complex than that. Well, you you actually get into UA's head in the book, whereas in the movie, he's never really the, the, the he, character the camera three scenes. On. Yeah, you yeah. barely see him. So, so there's there's some of the condensing was fine, and some of the condensing I felt uh, kind of betrayed the characters a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, I ended up at an eight. Generally, very good. Yeah, uh, I gave it a seven for for a lot of the same reasons that you're you're citing. Where uh, that they, they probably could have they maybe undersold some of the characters a little bit compared to how the book works because. I mean, the first half of the book really is a very much a political subterfuge thriller where you have this, is is Jessica betraying Leto? Like, where where is the hidden dagger mm-hmm. on yeah. Arrakis that the Harkonnens have left? Like, what where does it come from? What form does it come from? And then it, it turns out to be nothing nearly so subtle. It's a giant hammer. <laughs> while, while, while the unbreakable, the unbetrayable person is being the betrayer. Yeah. But, but ultimately it is... You go from where we're looking for all these hidden cracks and crevices, and they just drop the hammer on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, it, it just misses in some places. I think they they stretch. You know, I've, I've already said that I think they ended it in the wrong spot, and that they stretched it further into the book than they needed to. When they could have done a little more telling the material that was there, they left out. So that's that's really where my my big ding comes from. But ultimately, again, it's the unadaptable book on film, and it's gorgeous. Yeah. So. Yeah, Andrew. Uh, I give it. I give it a seven. Uh, basically, the same kind of stuff. Um, I was sad that they didn't really touch on anything that was. They they never named what Thufir Howitt and Piter were, which yeah. were Mentats. Mentat. Yeah, and the fact that Paul was also trained as a Mentat. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that which was in the book, and they they never touched on any of that kind of stuff, or or even really the entire like like world building element of they don't have computers because they're they're yeah. not allowed to create thinking machines because there was a war with AI hundreds or thousands of years before. <laughs> so, it could be the matrix. It could be the matrix. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so those kind of like those threads were kind of hard to to fit in there probably for them. Yeah, just get, because it just adds more more bloat to a film. Yeah, that either you have to make concessions by cutting it short, which we we all kind of agree that that probably would have been a good idea. But then at the same time, you well, know, it's uh, the the broader you the broader you make the world in mm-hmm. your storytelling, the the shorter distance your story is going to cover within the world. Exactly, it's just the the reality. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but honestly, like they're all pretty nitpicky um, kind of things here. 
it was a fantastic movie. I've already seen it three times, and yeah. that is very rare for me to to go out and seek out the same thing that I just watched mm-hmm. and watch it again. Yeah, especially as as recently as you turned around and watched it again. Yeah, and I, that says, I mean, that says a lot to me. I, I think it's honestly, like, not even just Dune. I think this is probably the sci-fi film that just everyone has kind of always wanted. It's it's weird. It has it it has the feel for it. It has the 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 scale and the expanse for it. And then you just get you know really great acting and all these other kind of like it's just such a good mix of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Alrighty. So any any expectations or hopes? Something you want to see in part two? I think uh, the, we know for sure it's happening. Yeah. So the 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 biggest thing for me is a proper development of Fade Rautha. Yeah. Because well, we've got to exist first. Well, yeah. But like we in, in the representation of the Harkonnens that we have, there's not really a lot of room for the, the golden child of the Harkonnens who is like the mirror, the evil twin to Paul, right. basically. They, they, right? kind of, they kind of follow the, which it's deliberate because Ben and Gesserit breeding program. Mm-hmm. They follow kind of the same path on opposite sides of yeah. the, the canyon, or well, because you know they're they're trying to they're trying to manipulate it on on such a a large scale that their breeding program is essentially mm-hmm. through so many different you know avenues. Yeah, that, you know right. they're they're just trying shotgun approach, just get them all out there and see what happens. <laughs> well, and I mean that was kind of the betrayal of Jessica was that she was supposed to have a daughter. Yep, and that daughter was going to be what they used to unite the Harkonnens and the Atreides. Yep, through marriage, and then end the feud that way, and also continue the breeding program. So yeah. that was the other, which we didn't really get in the movie. We you get it in the book. I don't think you ever really get it in the movie. No, not really. Like like we know that she wasn't supposed to have a son, and and that's that's, that's about that's as it. much as yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, I and I I tend to agree because you you do need more depth on that side of the world because just the generic bad guy, we don't like him because he's fat or bald or, or weird looking floating or, 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 or or has a a human spider pet. Oh yeah. Yeah, I I forgot about that. I mean, that was just a good way to say, Hey, this guy's really bad. Yeah. Yeah. He he does some weird stuff, messed up stuff, which, you know, compared to what they did in 1984 to say the same thing of he does weird messed up stuff. I'll take the weird human spider thing. Yeah, the, <laughs> the David Lynch film has some really weird scenes. It has, it it has moments, and there's there's a lot of moments strung together. And suddenly there's just a pug. I'm holding a pug. Yep. <laughs> Anyways, uh, uh, you know, I, I think you know, I, I agree. Just develop that side a little better just so it's, it's maybe a little more balanced or it mm-hmm. feels a little more balanced because we're going to get a lot of time with the Fremen. And the a Fremen, lot of time. A lot of time with the Fremen. Yeah. And the Fremen are already their own kind of different because of the, the constraints placed on them by the world and right. how they choose to live in the world. So we're going to need to be able to pull back away from that and go to the Harkonnens as the, the, the flip side in the same way that in the first movie we go from Caladan to uh, Arrakis as kind of the flip side of, of yeah. the, the nice water world to desert. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, anything? Uh, no, I mean, we kind of all covered that. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to see Sting as a fader out there again. <laughs> Gosh, stop. <laughs> stop. He's like 80. Stop. Don't do that. Um, but no, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's really just to see how, because I think, I think the, the earlier part of the book is much easier to adapt than the second part. 
just yes. because there's not really a whole lot that happens in the second part of the book. There's a whole lot of sitting still and developing long-term plans. Yeah, so it will be interesting to see how Denis can kind of like pull out, I'll say, some action sequences mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff in there to uh, to really sell the rest of the universe because the even the climax of the book is really not that much of a climax. Yeah. It's just well, I mean, there's there's the implied campaign of of harrying the Harkonnen forces. Yeah. Right. That is just sort of like because the way that the book is written, it kind of feels like a stage for a stage yeah. play. And there's a whole, oh hey, we're great warriors and we went off and had a battle off stage and here we are talking to people. Talking and, about how triumphant we and are. It, and it happened, yeah. right? The, the, you know, skipping over the impossibly complicated thing that just will not do that on the stage. That's fine. People yep. will understand. Um, <laughs> and, and it kind of feels that way. But in a film, you can you can take that implied campaign and you can really flesh it out. Yeah. Especially with you know a good budget, good effects, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, just go ham. Yeah, so it'll be interesting, you know, uh, very high expectations going into the next next part here. As far as I know, he is going to start filming it next year. Okay. Um, so that means we probably won't get to see it until 2023, mm-hmm. um, which is fine. Take all the time you want. Yeah, I mean, get it get it right. You know, we, we thought really highly of part one. I, I would I hope part two is something that we can think really highly of as well. Yep. So. Yeah. Well, that sounds like all the time we have for this episode so until next time i'm steven i'm andrew and i'm joel and every spoiler was intended thank you for tuning in if you like what you heard you can support the show for as low as one dollar at patreon.com slash spoilers intended podcast we also have a discord server and would love to have more people joining in the conversation links are in the description below thank you 